0: I'm Andy Ogden. I was born and raised in Boise. In junior high school, I ended up meeting uh, Moreland Nelson. My friends and I got into falconry, and Mr. Nelson taught us really to fall in love with raptors from that point on, and so I was basically in junior high when I decided what I wanted to do in life, and that was emulate Mr. Nelson. He never knew what an impression he made on us, uh, but he sure's hell impressed us enough that you know, his buddies and I still—we don't call him Morley Nelson. We don't—we don't own that name. It's Mr. Nelson. You know.
1: We've learned how important Morley's family was to his raptor conservation efforts, but Morley's network of supporters and mentees extended well beyond his sons and daughter
2: and then i had three other or four other men a couple of them went for phds that i put through college the only reason i was able to accomplish what i did was because they were helping me and i
1: will never forget that by the mid to late 1960s morley had put the snake river canyon on the map through eye to the offbeat eagle the, the walt
3: disney movie and the, the mutual of Omaha. Wild Kingdom pieces.
1: More than 130 million people in the U.S. had seen the Snake River Canyon on TV, as Steve Stubner, Morley's biographer, points out. The decades of work that Morley had invested in raptor conservation were reaching a crucial moment. Not only had Morley introduced the world to the Snake River Canyon, he had established strategic relationships with officials from the Bureau of Land Management, the agency responsible for managing the Snake River Canyon. And he had cultivated a network of young raptor enthusiasts who were eager to get out in the canyon to count eagles and falcons.
3: He understood the need for science. You have to educate policymakers and the agency people and give them what they need to
1: be able to take this and protect the area. Morley now had a clear vision for protecting the Snake River Canyon and he began to steer his cadre of falconry apprentices towards conducting the research that would allow him to fulfill this goal. About
0: 67 is when I started to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service and we we're doing a food habit study on golden eagles. Probably the Fish and Wildlife Service contacted Mr. Nelson trying to find somebody who knew how to climb cliffs, and that was the way I got
1: that job. You're listening to Common Land, produced by the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. In season one, we are telling the creation story behind the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, a protected area in southwest Idaho that was set aside to conserve birds of prey.
0: We were up fooling around, my buddies and I were up climbing around and running around in the foothills at the north end of 36th Street up in the foothills and uh we found a swainson's hawk that somebody had shot and it uh, had a broken wing we b- brought it home after quite a struggle because we didn't know how it this was an adult swainson's hawk and it was mean um but we finally got it home somehow or other we got the word you talk to mr nelson and so we called him and took the bird up to him and he of course worked his magic on the hawk and uh there were no rehabbers then and uh, this bird had a badly broken wing it was never going to fly again so it was either euthanize it or keep it and uh, I ended up keeping it and uh, it could never fly if I had it for probably four four years at least And uh, that thing never got a bit tamer than the day we caught it the first time. It was just a terrible, terrible hawk. But every time Mr. Nelson had talked to it, 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 within seconds he would be stroking its chest, telling him what a beautiful hawk he is, and he'd just calm right down. It was something, you know.
1: This took place in the early 1960s, when Morley's house in the Boise foothills was becoming well-known as a home for sick or injured birds of prey.
0: What happened was on every day, basically, uh, the three of us that were into falconry would go to Mr. Nelson's house and we'd wait for him to come home from work. Um, By that time, we were expected to have the hawk house cleaned out. We would bring our birds up and show them off to him and and he would tell us what we were doing wrong and what we were doing right and everything, and then we'd take him home, and it's like once a week, you had to bring your hawk up, and he'd check it over and make sure you were taking care of it.
1: Throughout his life, Morley was always sharing his knowledge of raptors and training anyone who was interested in the art of falconry. But Andy Ogden was clearly one of Morley's most eager apprentices.
0: We didn't go to the high school prom because uh, we were chasing hawks, you know, and that, was, that that's what we did. And uh, yeah, none of us had any girlfriends because we had hawks to take care of. And that was, you know, what we did.
1: By the time Andy was skipping out on his high school prom, his passion for birds of prey had earned him a job down in the Snake River Canyon.
0: Morley got me a job working for the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, climbing cliffs, going into Golden Eagle Nest. And he had, of course, trained us how to climb into cliffs and do the rappelling and everything. I graduated from high school in 66, and so it would have been before then.
3: Andy Ogden, one of those boys that came up and went through the hawk house and loved hanging out with Morley when he was like in junior high and high school, he ended up getting a job with the Fish and Wildlife Service and he went out and was checking what golden eagles eat in their nests.
1: That's the voice of Steve Stubner, author of Cool North Wind, a biography of Morley Nelson.
3: And so in the course of doing that, Andy confirmed 36 golden eagle irees in the late 60s.
1: This early raptor research that Andy worked on would become the first published study on birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon. The project was overseen by a biologist from the Division of Wildlife Services within the Department of the Interior, Gary Hickman. But Hickman relied on the local knowledge and expertise of his two field technicians, Andy Ogden, and Morley's son, Tim Nelson. Working under Hickman's direction, Ogden and Tim Nelson provided the first scientific proof of the uniquely high densities of golden eagles in the canyon. In 1968, this research was presented to Morley's strongest allies within the Bureau of Land Management, Edward C. Booker, who was the Boise District Manager for the BLM, and William R. Miners, who was the Chief of the Division of Resource Management. Both Booker and Miners shared Morley's vision for protecting the Snake River Canyon, but it was unclear at the time how to go about establishing this protection. The Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, was established in 1946, less than 25 years earlier, and there was no precedent at the time for protecting land managed by this agency. Booker and Miners hoped that by gathering scientific evidence of the importance of the canyon for raptors, they could convince the Secretary of the Interior, who has authority over the BLM, to protect the canyon through an administrative action.
2: But anyhow, I took all these Irish that I knew of, and they went over and looked and said, yeah, they're here. Mm-hmm. And of course, they made a mention of the pra- Prairie Falcons. And then um, th- then uh, Morris Hornocker, Doc Hornocker, yeah. got interrupted. And
3: he started uh, doing it. Maurice Hornocker up at the University of Idaho had this cooperative wildlife management unit, but they could do all the master's
1: and Ph.D. work under Hornocker. Hornocker would go on to become a world-renowned expert on big cats. But at this early stage in his long career, he was swayed by Morley to initiate a series of more intensive studies documenting raptor densities down in the Snake River Canyon. He brought master's student John Beecham on board to conduct the study and hired Andy Ogden, who was now attending Boise State University, to work on the project.
0: But you gotta remember, I was. what, 18, 19 years old?
1: Beecham and Ogden completed the new Golden Eagle study by the spring of 1970, and Miners immediately incorporated Beecham's master's thesis into his proposal for a 26,255 acre protective withdrawal in the Snake River Canyon.
3: And they felt that was the science they needed to do an initial administrative withdrawal for the Birds of prey area, just like the rim-to-rim protection. And so once they had that in hand, they took that to Washington, D.C. Bill Miners also had put together this um, pictorial history of the area and Bill was a photographer and also like the natural resources guy for the BLM and assigned to Southwest Idaho and so he had been out with Morley a million times and stuff and got all kinds of great pictures
1: While the proposal for the establishment of the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area was making its way through the various administrative processes in the Department of the Interior another consequential political development was playing out in Idaho In the fall of 1970, Cecil D. Andrus was elected governor of Idaho. Andrus was the first Democrat to be elected governor in 25 years, and he ran on a platform of environmental protection. Cecil Andrus passed away in 2017 at the age of 85, but was interviewed by Steve Stubner in the year 2000. This interview was recorded with an old microcassette deck.
3: Well, um, I was wondering what role you had initially, um, uh, when uh, Rogers Morton um, set aside the uh, rim-to-rim protection in 1971, you would have been in your first year as governor.
2: But well, I, I think I got to back up and tell you why I why I got involved in that at that point in time with okay. Rogers Morton, and that was because I I had gotten to know Morley Nelson when I was elected governor in in the fall of 1970. Morley okay. invited me up to his house where he and Pat lived. Uh, talk about the birds of prey and show me old Otis uh, the, the old legal, that he couldn't return to the wild time doing. And yep. duck season was on he knew I was a hunter and he said now save the heads and the feet and the wings and the off falls and and uh, so we got to uh, feeding Max Yost and myself and some of the people that were hunting ducks and uh, we'd save all of those things and the scraps and, and take them up and Morley had his freezer full and he was feeding the birds of prey that were injured. And that made me aware of the, the, uh, the birds of prey canyon and the study that was done by BLM.
1: Meanwhile, research in the Snake River Canyon continued. By 1970, Andy Ogden had graduated from Boise State University and began work on a master's degree under Maurice Hornocker at the University of Idaho. Up until this point, all the research conducted in the canyon had been focused on golden eagles. But there was another raptor species for whom the unique habitat of the Snake River Canyon region was critically important. There comes a time
0: in, in studying any species where you don't know anything about them and you got to start out at the bottom. And in the mid-60s, that's where they were with prairie falcons. My research then was aimed at, really, there wasn't anything in the literature about uh, prairie falcons, productivity, nest site selections, prey, and that sort of thing. And uh, that's what uh, I did for my for my master's research. To look back and think about the days that we're... we're you could see uh uh five or six male prey falcons taking turns to harass one eagle that's just trying to fly down the river he's just trying to get from point a to point b and every place he goes he gets chased by prairie falcons and of course my interest was to watch that male prey falcon and see where he turns around because that's the edge of his territory. And once you get the territory boundaries marked out on the cliff face, then you know where to start keying in on where his nest is. That was my job, you know, okay? But thinking back on it, yeah, you know, it was, it was something.
1: Although he didn't know it at the time, Andy Ogden's master's research on prairie falcons marked the beginning of a decades-long monitoring effort that would become the key factor in establishing the final boundaries of a national conservation area in the region
0: at that time um there was nobody in in the canyon Uh, we'd go days and days and never see another person down there and uh and we had some some real adventures climbing cliffs and falling off of cliffs finding prairie falcons that were especially aggressive at defending their nest most of the time they just around and cackled at you but I remember there was one we named the sun goddess and she was trying to kill you she really really was trying to kill you and uh, she would go between me and the cliff with her talons out and go right in front of my face and just like and it happened so fast you couldn't even see what was happening she never cackled never made any sound at all most of the time they just fly around and cackle and you know right where they are She never did. Uh, She wouldn't attack, she wouldn't stoop on you unless she had the sun at her back.
1: And, uh, you know, it was scary getting to her. On one particular visit to the nesting site of the prairie falcon that Ogden deemed the sun goddess. All
0: of a sudden the safety rope just comes pouring (laughs) down over the side, and I'm yelling, up slack, up slack, up slack, because I'm at the nest, and all of a sudden the the whole safety rope ends up falling by and going down, and so I just rappelled down to the bottom of the cliff and climbed up and around and got back up to where Dave was, and his head was laid open, he got it right in the back of the head, and there was one of those 90 degree kind of tears of scalp and blood was flying everywhere, so that was for the on the first nest visit then we had to go back uh, a couple of weeks later to put the bands on in there you know to band the birds and uh, Dave never wore a hat you know of any kind the baseball hat or anything but when we got out of the truck started walking towards the nest he had a helmet on
1: On the morning of August 24th, 1971, Andy and his research partner Dave were down in the Snake River Canyon monitoring prairie falcons.
0: We were working on falcons. It was finding nests, and and that was the procedure. You spent your time at the bottom of the cliff watching, and you figured out which hole they were in, uh, you know, their nesting. And then you went back around and rappelled down into the to, to get down to the nest. Well, the uh, so you'd spend hours sitting down there trying to figure out where that nest hole is in relation to that sagebrush on top of the cliff. Well, all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of people standing on top of the cliff, and we never see anybody down there. We drove around to see what was going on. It turns out they were dedicating the area right then. Well, I, I didn't know anything about it. We were, well, we, uh, we were,
1: you know, scientists. We were working The BLM proposal to establish rim-to-rim protection for the Snake River Canyon had sailed through the approval process at the Department of the Interior.
3: Morley had the BLM super convinced at the local level, and they had a rock-solid case with the research that they had at the time, to make it um, pretty easy to get that through.
1: Once the proposal for the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area was approved, a site had to be chosen for the official dedication ceremony. That responsibility fell on the shoulders of a young BLM employee named Wally Meyer.
4: I started working for the BLM back in 1971. Uh, one of my first jobs was working on the, uh, the ceremony designating the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. So I had to go out there on the Swan Falls Road and find a, an appropriate place to have the designation and we wanted a place where you had a, a good view of the canyon and also a place to land the helicopters for the dignitaries that flown in so dedication point became a obvious point to have the have the uh, ceremony
1: dedication point has since become one of the most popular visitation spots within the birds of prey NCA but at the time there
4: was a, a little two track dirt road Heading out to where where people would go out there and look and turn around, but it wasn't called Dedication Point. At the uh, ceremony at Dedication Point, Morning Nelson was there. The uh, director of uh, the BLM, Bert Silcock, was there. Of course, the governor was there.
2: We went out to the canyon rim and overlooked it. And and, uh, Rogers and I were talking, and I said, well, now, Mr. Secretary, uh, you have, in fact, uh, protected the bedroom. But what are you going to do about the pantry? he said, I beg your pardon, what do you mean pantry? And, and having fed birds of prey, you know, from, from my hunting days and Morley Nelson's uh, discussions and watching him, I knew that the Townsend ground squirrel, the snakes, the rabbits, and everything were up, they weren't down in the canyon, they were right. up on the flats. So I, I said, well, you got a nice place for them to, to uh, soar and a nice place for them to, to, for their nests and all of that, but they've got to have a food source that is, interrupt- that is non-interruptible. And he, oh, that's right. Well, a little that I know that later on I'd be given that, that responsibility. Right. But, we, but it was clear at that point in time that, uh, that it was a, a great first start, but uh, we needed more. And that's, that's how I got involved. But the guy that got me involved was Morley Nelson.
3: That was not controversial to protect the, the rim-to-rim canyon walls because they weren't being used by anything. You know what I mean? And it became controversial to try to protect the uplands above the rim because the Farm Bureau and others were worried about potentially uh, bringing more water to the desert. And uh, so that could have been irrigated farmland in their mind.
2: Yeah, I, I think I created the word pantry, but it was for, but it was from the, the use. I used that term to describe what Morley talked about. You've got to feed the birds. The birds have got to have a, a food source. Yeah. And uh, so he said, uh, it's here now, but will it, will it, so I, I have, you've got to you gotta give that old scallywag uh, credit for, for understanding what it takes uh, to, uh, to create a full habitat area for
1: him. Yeah. It's clear that both Andrus and Morley wanted more than the rim-to-rim protection provided by the 1971 designation of the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. And they had already begun to strategize about how they would expand the protected area in the future. I
2: said the thing to do is to take what we can get in the canyon and, and protect that because of its scenic values of the canyon as well as the Birds of Prey area, and uh, then there was no threat we'll come back take the rest of it later Uh, or what we need i had no idea at that point in time the magnitude of the uh, of what we were going to
3: create but i think it was very visionary for morley and the blm to put together that research package you know there's no doubt they had made the case
1: it's a testament to Morley's skills of persuasion that they were able to make the case at all. There was virtually no precedent for what they had done. It had been only one year since an act of Congress established the very first BLM-managed conservation area at the King Range in California. These were some of the very earliest entries into what would become known as the National Conservation Land System. So despite the fact that Morley and Andrus were not fully satisfied with the rim-to-rim boundary, they recognized that this was a significant achievement.
2: CBS, I think it was CBS crew came out. It and, was, I think Cronkite was there. Cronkite, well, Cronkite was the announcer on it. But anyway, they came and interviewed me in the governor's office, and I wore my best blue suit, and I looked into the camera, and I was just talking about how great it was to the birds of prey, and and uh, Morley Nelson, and I thought, oh man, I'm going to be on national TV, and and you know, being a brand new greenhorn governor, I thought that was just great. Well, when it came on. The guy that really had all of the time on the TV was Morley Nelson in an old wool shirt with a couple of the buttons gone to tell them that, <laughs> short of the birds of prey. Yep. And Andrews didn't even get a glimpse of that. That taught me a lesson right there as a young fellow that, hey, you know, the important. they knew the importance was not some politician sitting behind a desk in a coat and a tie talking to him. It was a guy that was out on the ground. And Morley Nelson was always out on the ground.
3: I think he was super proud of it. I'm sure he would have been shedding a tear in 1970 when they did that first level of protection, or 71. He contributed to many other things, but I think that is his single most important achievement. Just
1: a few months after the dedication ceremony in November of 1971, was the premiere of one of Morley's highest-profile raptor films yet.
3: The eagle and the hawk. Nell Newman was this 13-year-old girl starring in the movie with Morley, and Morley's rappelling down into an eagle irie for the first time with Nell Newman. And
2: here's what we came for, Nell, right down there is that eagle irie, right up there on the point.
1: Nell Newman is the daughter of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Here's Nell from a 1999 conversation she had with Morley and Steve Stubner.
5: Dad was doing a movie in, uh, at, I think, at Universal Studios, right around the same time that uh, the, the uh, My Side of the Mountain was being made. And Martha must have bumped into Morley somewhere on the set. And said, so, God, my daughter wants to be a falconer. And she's got birds and would love some help. And, and that was literally, literally, Dad brought Morley and Pat home from the studio one day, and that was how I met him. And I had my Kestrel, and I was holding his playhouse, and somebody's little daughter wanted to hold my Kestrel, and she wasn't holding on to the leash, and she let it go, and we chased it all over Beverly Hills to people's backyards. Oh my God! Uh, up and down, Dad and Morley up and down telephone poles. And I climbed up that thing to get her down. I finally got her down because okay. there were 250 people talking, wanting to talk to Paul Newman. <laughs> Because everybody knows him so well. Right. Or at least they think they do. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, so It was just Morley's idea to do the movie, and that was probably a year and a half after we met, I think.
1: This connection with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward represented one of Morley's most influential alliances. And the film, The Eagle and the Hawk, marked an early example of celebrities using their star power to promote environmental causes.
5: Hello, I'm Joanne Woodward.
3: This is a simple story about two people who are young at heart and share a devotion to the eagle and the hawk and to all birds and all living things. One is a courageous 12-year-old girl, my daughter Nell. The other, a rugged mountain man called Morley. All right,
2: now you go up and down and just scoot right over
5: to the edge. Should we hold on to this?
2: Yeah, now, now you get, you hold that rope with this hand and this rope, hand puts on this rope. Okay. And then you, when you want to stop yourself, you just hold that.
5: Yeah. It was the hanging, but I couldn't figure out what I was doing. I was sort of hanging on the cliff, and I yeah. hadn't figured out about putting my feet. Once I got my feet under me, I was okay, and I figured I could go up and down.
2: Now lean back in your climbing rope. Lean way back and out from the cliff. That's a girl. That's wonderful. Now we can go right down to the Eagle Eyrie. But then right. she went on down and sat picked yeah. up there and calmed down and picked up the eagle and everything was absolutely great. <laughs> in fact, that's a wonderful film. So then yeah. after the movie, yeah. you guys remained in touch.
5: I used to come out for a couple of weeks every summer and I either had a bird that I was flying or worked with one of Morley's birds here.
1: Nell Newman went on to study ecology. She was, by all accounts, forever inspired by her close childhood connection with birds of prey.
5: I decided that uh, I wanted to support... Um, endangered species and threatened species like the peregrine falcon by growing organic agriculture, by growing the sector of organic agriculture, by doing an organic line, Ooh. and then donate the profits to charity. So that's actually where I got the idea for selling Newman's on Organics. I don't know if Marlon enjoys being in the public eye, but, you know, it serves a purpose. <laughs> it serves a purpose. It to, sure does. You know, and that's, what, oh, yeah. that's what's important. Yeah, that's right. To use it for the betterment of uh, all species.
1: The Newman-Woodward family weren't the only celebrities involved in this high-profile raptor film.
4: Marty was a, a good friend of John Denver also.
3: John Denver writes the, the song for the beginning and the end of the eagle and the hawk.
1: had reached a high water mark in his lifelong effort to conserve birds of prey and their habitat. He helped give the Snake River Canyon its biggest attention boost thus far, just months after the area finally received national protection. Morley would remain very active in the effort to protect the entire Snake River Birds of Prey area in the coming decades, but he now had a group of strong advocates in both the political and scientific arenas to share significant portions of this burden with. A new crop of extremely talented and passionate scientists were about to descend upon the Snake River Canyon, and Cecil Andrus's political career and environmental efforts had only just begun. While the establishment of rim-to-rim protection for the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area was relatively uncontroversial, expanding the boundary to include the raptors' hunting grounds would be a decades-long political battle, and that battle had only just begun.
3: to the stars and reach for the heavens and hope for the future and all that we can be and not what we
1: are. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt. Steve Olsip and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production assistance provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Leica like Rocket, Ragged Coyote, The Great Turtle, and John Denver. Additional audio was provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.